This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning. It's one minute past nine and you're tuned to 102.7 3RRR. You may be listening via rrr.org.au. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty. My name is Bron Burton. I'm Kate Mills. I'm Rex Hunter. How are you? Good. Both. Good. Good. Fantastic, Bron. Excellent. Pleased to hear Good to be it. in the studio on the seat and ready and raring to go. Indeed. It is good to have you Kate's back here. Kate's got his board shorts on ready to go straight after this till I see you too. I will be heading down to St Kilda. <laughs> I'll have a little bit of break first, but then I'll head down this afternoon, but we'll find right. out more about that later in the show. We will. Hey, many thanks to Tim for Vital Bits, as mm. always. Andrew for Soulful Bits. Always good. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had a bit of a sing around the house to respect. Thank you for that, Tim. <laughs> I, uh, I was able to uh, educate my nearly 14-year-old about Miles Davis. Oh. Thanks to Tim. That was very good. I, mm. I heard Miles. Mm. Kind of blue, too. Yeah, it was. <laughs> All right, two minutes past nine, and let's go through today's program. Uh, we're going to kick off with a bit of news, and then you, Rex, giving us an update. On right, right. I'll just find something to talk about then, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be a really quick segment. No, uh, all things um, maritime archaeology. Uh, exactly, yes. Talking about the MWV, just giving updates and a little bit of... Uh, Three uh, shore-based wreck dives you can do in Port Phillip, all in one spot. That's awesome. Cool. Wait. You'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. <laughs> and uh, we're then going to cross to our dive reporter, Terry Allen. She's going to give us a dive report and also fill us in on what happened last weekend when she was up in Sydney for the AusTech conference. Conference? Symposium? Symp- it's, it's all it's diving a, technology. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Tech divers, you get out there and um, talk about gas, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll find out from Terry. And uh, then we're going to be joined in studio uh, by Jonathan Taylor, who's Vice President of Surf Rider Foundation Melbourne Chapter, and on the phone by Sean Doherty uh, to talk about the uh, campaign to prevent drilling, deep water drilling, from happening in the Bight. Um, it's being planned for later this year by Norwegian company Equinor. And we've been following this campaign over the last few weeks. Um, the, pu- uh, the public comments closed on Wednesday. So a bit of a significant milestone. But as you were alluding to, Kate, there, Melbourne's contribution to, um, I guess, a visual form of protest in the form of a paddle out is happening this afternoon. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be drones out taking photos of all those bodies out in the water. Um, there's been some pretty spectacular imagery come out of the protest, like all over Australia. So Melbourne are just sort of adding their image to it. Yeah, and Sean was, at, uh, as we were speaking with him last week, about to head out to the protest at Burley Heads. Uh, and I've seen some of the footage from that absolutely massive and as he pointed out last week Burley Heads isn't even in the predicted area of impact which is huge it goes from sort of around the Margaret River area in Western Australia all the way right up to Port Macquarie Burley Heads is out of that zone but um, they've come out in force to protest anyway but it's an issue for all surfers surfers don't just sit in one spot and surf they surf all around the country and all around the world so you know it's going to impact everyone it's a statement about the ocean too isn't it it is yeah yeah uh, so, looking forward to that. Uh, and then, uh, Cade, we're going to finish up with you. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about boat noise and how much I love scientists and the way that they think. So, just a couple of studies that have been done recently on boat noise and a bit of a history about it too. Mm. And uh, before we go into the weather, big shout out to surf rider Melbourne President Marvin Barker, who was going to be joining us in studio today, but he's sick. So, sorry to hear that, Marvin. And um, we'll play a track for you a bit later on. Hope it gets you better. Shall we have some weather? 
We should. That's, that's me, isn't it? Yeah, that's you. So that's for those you. heading down to St Kilda today, you cannot use weather as an excuse. It's going to be a beautiful day, top of 27. Oh. We've got light winds. I think we've got light northerly winds, north-northwest in the morning, which is going to be perfect for St Kilda, nice and offshore there, um, turning around to sort of the southerly in the afternoon. But again, it's going to be light, so we have no excuse. You have no excuse not to get there if you've got a surfboard. And then tomorrow it plunges. So today's going to be 27. Tomorrow is going to be 19, top of 19 degrees. Tuesday, again, staying around the same. We're going to have 11 overnight and 18. Wednesday, top of 21. And we start to get a bit better on Thursday, 25, Friday, 22, and Saturday, 16. And we've got a few showers sort of sprinkled among us that, but otherwise it's going to be a reasonably sunny week. But autumn is starting to appear, which is my favourite time of the year. Mm. Um, time to get out in the water. All the summer crowds have gone and all the surfers are going to be out there over autumn. Nice. I always say autumn's um, our reward for surviving summer. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, now, I think we've got some time for a little bit of news. Have you got some, Kate? Some quick news? Oh, actually, we didn't do the Tide Times. Yeah. We better do that. Oh, we better do the Tide Times for those that are out there. The Tide, it is... Oh, should we do Point Lonsdale or Melbourne? Let's. Oh, let's do both, actually, let's given the paddle out today. Okay, so paddle out today. The high tide is at 6 o'clock this morning and the low tide is at 12.42, so it's going to be just up before the paddle out. And at Point Lonsdale, so at the heads, high tide was at 3 o'clock this morning and low tide 9, so there's another high tide this afternoon at 3.45. Excellent. So, yeah, if you're surfing today as well, there's a couple of foot of swell down on the surf coast and probably better off over the Mornington Peninsula, Phillip Island side, uh, which meaning with a high tide, if you can catch that and the winds are still northerly, the afternoon's probably a good option. Mm, very good. Okay, to the news. So, quick news, I've got two things. Yeah, go for it. How quick do I need to be? Oh, you know. Reasonably quick. Where are we at? Oh, yeah. I've got a couple right. of minutes. Cool. So Actually, ultimately, we're cutting into your segment time at the end of the show. All right. Well, I'll, <laughs> so. I'll see how this goes. So the sea slug census was run last weekend, and yep. I briefly caught up with Nicole yesterday at the Point Cook uh, Day by the Bay Festival. Oh, yeah. yeah. We talked about that last week. How did yes. it go? It was fantastic. I awesome. was down there early, and I actually ended up going for a swim. I had to walk about 300 metres just to get into the water at Point Cook because it's such a shallow gradient. Um, I was on my knees most of the way. But, yeah, lots of people down there sort of checking out the stalls, running into a lot of familiar faces and people sort of enjoying it. And Alady, who we had in the studio, was standing there drinking a Red Bull, so I think that pretty much says everything <laughs> you need to know about what she'd been through getting it up and running. But, yeah, it was really good fantastic location and a really good vibe sort of down there but talking to nicole the sea slug census that um believe there's probably over 100 people if not more it's really hard to judge how many people went out there because not everyone finds them yep. so a lot of people go but they don't necessarily send in images and it was i guess similar to last year um not many species being found so okay. some of the good hunters were returning sort of about 10 odd species we have a couple of crack nudibranch hunters okay and they found about 30 odd species uh, but given in october they were returning like 50 60 species so that they are seasonal we know that but we're only just starting to i guess learn a little bit more and that's part of the census to try and get these patterns over the years so this correlates with last year similar thing not too many species that are coming in so it'll be interesting again to see how we go again this october when it comes back have you got any theories why why have we got greater diversity in spring because they can't just disappear and then magically reappear they must be going somewhere 
to eventually breed and yeah well they don't live very long so they're only around for supposedly a year so maybe they're only they're more visible perhaps in spring um everything seems to happen in spring on land mm. in water it's obviously related to the temperature so whether that's a food availability they're moving with currents um I guess it's one of those things we need to sit down and start coming up with more theories as to oh, what's going yeah. on and start testing them. And that's the whole point of doing this in the first place is to highlight how little we know and start putting all those questions out there so yeah. people can answer them. You've got such a really nice seasonal effect happening and then the next question is oh, why. So it's a perfect experiment set up. F- from stuff they've done up the coast, they found they dropped the winter sea slug censuses because they were finding next not next to nothing but very little in winter. Mm. So really extreme seasonal dependent on temperature. So particularly with things like climate change being a factor, it would be interesting to see, track that over time and see how that changes and you know whether you do notice those changes with more things staying around a bit longer because we have those warmer temperatures. So Mm. again it's tip of the iceberg kind of stuff we're just getting started but because i spoke about that for too long i'm going to have to leave my segment on whale earwax <gasps> no. for another time <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't have asked all my questions that's all right um all leave right. everyone hanging for that one <laughs> i'm sure it tastes gross too <laughs> <laughs> thanks kate as people are having their breakfast. It's 16 minutes past nine. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Rex. Rex, I'm, I'm re- we- ready and raring to go. Oh, now, we. update from the Maritime Archaeology Association of Victoria. What's been going on? That's us. Um, well, some of the, speaking of Oztec, some of the guys did go up to Oztec mm-hmm. last weekend. I haven't heard any reports yet, but it's generally a pretty good conference. Also, um, we... Uh, We've got a sort of a bit of a project underway to um, Australian Shipwrecks Survey Project where we're looking at Australian-built ships that have been wrecked within Victoria and just what we're going to do is build up a, like a database of um, sizes of timbers and types of timbers and it's just really handy information to have if you, you know, for identification purposes and estimating tonnages of shipwrecks and all that because so variable. It's like the car production today. Uh, you know, a Hyundai is not built the same as a, Hon- a Honda, or a Honda is not built the same as a Ferrari. Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, interesting. I don't have either. In- interesting um, that you've got that qualitative information that can easily, once you build up a database yeah. that's um, comprehensive enough, you can turn it into really interesting qual- uh, quantitative information yeah. as well. Uh, uh, it's usable all over Australia. It's not just usable within Victoria. It's mm. going to be usable to Tassie because we have Tasmanian-built vessels wrecked in Victoria and New South Wales vessels wrecked in Victoria and South Australia has Victorian-built vessels wrecked there. So if we can sort of combine the whole lot, it's going to be really a really, really handy database. Is, was there a common source of timber for a lot of these boats or are they sort of basically they pull up on a shoreline and they'll grab what's there? Are generally, they made from um, local products? Generally from the east coast of Australia all the way down to Tassie was the main building sites. Like if you had a creek in, in Tassie somewhere, all they'd do... Is a creek, I mean, a creek is as wide as this room, that's all they need. And they build a, a, which is, what, four, four and a half metres or so, and they build a build a, a vessel there and then either launch it sideways or get it in there somehow. And uh, they just use the local timber. They, they ask them to go out, chop chop the timber down, and then they just build the ship, push it in the water, and away you go. Mm. So mm. any... so. To Kate's question about the type of timber that was used, it would have been Australian gum, presumably. Also, Some different types of Australian gum. It is, um, turpentine was popular. For, it depends what part of the vessel. Like 
for the keel and, and keels and they want nice sol- solid heavy timber like turpentine or timbers like that um, even red gum red red gum was used and barges and all types blue gum Tassie Tassie boat builders used to build um, famous clippers made out of blue gum which blitz 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 the other um, you know overseas built vessels mm-hmm. North American built vessels for speed and, and durability um, the only problem was it um, didn't have the uh, same rate a same Lloyd's rating as uh, say the North American timbers so they were sort of held back with their insurances and all that type of thing mm. so yeah very very interesting so we're looking looking at Australian built t- vessels and um, and going to make a database out of that so with that in mind we've been looking for a couple of vessels one's called the Reliance which was built in 1865 in Melbourne it was a paddle steam it was wrecked off Cape Shank in 1869 and that was a composite built vessel so it had iron frames and uh, wooden wooden planking planking composite you know composite materials so um, so we're looking for that how so far off Cape Shank is it it should be about two miles two miles okay <laughs> we've looked at within the mile range so we've done a couple of kilometers of searching with side scan out there within a, a mile and so we've Moving the search grid out to the two-mile range yeah. now. And so what's the depth? About 20, 30 metres? Oh, you're looking, looking up to about 40-odd metres. 40, right. God, it's going to be tricky because those waters off Cape Shank. You're scaring Shank. me now, Bron. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You're never going to find it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not saying that at all. But, um, yeah, uh, I, and I guess that's that's the nature of shipwrecks, isn't it? Yeah, they're, yeah. They're not, they're not likely to, you know, very conveniently sink. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Is there a story behind, like, how do you know it's off Cape Shank? Obviously, people survived. Did they survive? And yeah, the survivors, uh, yeah. there was a marine inquiry. So the marine, at the marine inquiry, because the agent Argus used to report all these events because there was nothing else to report except the odd murder or whatever. <laughs> and so at the marine inquiry, the guy said, yeah, we, we were looking at uh, Cape Shank, which was sort of northwest of them, between a mile, you know, a mile and two miles. So generally they're pretty good unless they're lying through their eye teeth and they <laughs> did an insurance <laughs> job. <laughs> but generally some of the descriptions are deadly accurate. You go, and when you eventually find the site, you think, oh, well, that's where it was, yeah. Yeah. So that was the Reliance and you said there were a couple of others that you're looking for. Well, we went and dived the, um, speaking of Tasmanian-built vessels, we went and dived the, uh, a vessel called the Queenscliff, which was uh, an old... Hobart built a double-ended ferry that was wrecked off Point Cook Pier in 19, only in 1973 and uh, it was built in 19, 1905 in Hobart. So again, Australian built, so we, go, we went to have a look at it but unfortunately the night before there was an easterly blowing about 30 knots, Point Cook <laughs> is on the western side of the bay. Oh, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we virtually had pea soup weather, uh, viz and saw, could see maybe... 30 centimetres. <laughs> so to, we'll go back, but found the site, found the side scan, still there. It's there's an awful lot of wreck there. and Cool. It, so lots of uh, lots of potential to go down there and do here. some exploring. To do some exploring, some mapping. We'll get some timber samples, get some measurements and uh, go from there. Excellent. Uh, shall we move on to the three wrecks that you mentioned? The three wrecks, yeah. Can I have a guess? Are they on the Bellarine? Yes, yes. <laughs> I might have dived on one of them. <laughs> anyway, far away. Well, we're we're going to talk about three wrecks if I've if I've got time. Um, off indented head. Uh, yeah. It's 
there's an amazing site called the Ozone, which is yep. a paddle steamer built in a steel paddle steamer built in 1880 in in uh, Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, operated for the Bay Steamers for a number of years, and eventually, in about 1918, it was um, sold for scrap. The shipbreaker stripped it off because there's all lots of ferrous, non-ferrous metal, valuable metals on these vessels, you know, bronze and brass and all that rest of it. So that was all stripped of all the valuable metals. And then uh, as Captain Forbes had a, a place at Indented Head and he wanted to make a little boat harbour. So there's sort of a little bight um, where, near where the old caravan park was there. And he, so he scuttled that, he scuttled the ozone, uh, he scuttled a vessel called the Dominion, which was a big wooden vessel, and also a little um, government steamer called the Faris. Mm. So um, if you... If you want to get a wreck fix and you want iron, iron, an iron or a steel wreck, and you want a wooden wreck and you want a, a composite wreck, you go there. It's absolutely they're fa- fantastic. So on the you got the, the ozone, which is about I think it's about 79 metres long. So it's a big, big site. Mm. A couple of big boilers. The pad- all the paddle wheels have collapsed. Um, but the, the bow and stern there, there's a big steering quadrant. So if you want to see a nice wreck, like something you'd find out in the ship's graveyard, just head there. Mm. Uh, and the Dominion's a really, really nice site. Big wooden, um, softwood, North American built vessel. So that, that's that's around, um, there's about 50 metres of hull left there, mm-hmm. which is at the north end of the site near the stern of the ozone. And then there's the Faros, which was a little of steamer. It's about um, 120 feet. What's that in metres? I don't know. Um, that's yeah. near the stern as well, but on the inside. I, uh, the best part is it's pretty easy to find, isn't it? Yeah, you don't need a GPS. <laughs> you don't need any of that stuff. The, you use that old system, stand on the shore and look out to sea, and yeah. there it is. Have you dived the ozone? I have. I've, yeah. I've snorkeled the ozone. It's quite yeah. shallow, so you yeah, probably snorkeling is probably easier. Snorkel. You, can, yeah. you can snorkel it. Yeah. We've got and about two minutes left. So, yes. don't go there in an easterly. I can highly recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> you do get easterlies this time of the yeah, year. Yeah, the easterlies that come over summer. It's a predominant wind, wind in the summer. Yeah. So um, don't, don't, go, don't go there in easterlies unless they say less than 10 knots. Wait till a westerly, a southwesterly, or northwesterly, west. When the vis will improve, and it's very, very it is, good dives. It is a nice dive. Do you want to save the next two till next time, or do you want to quickly race through them now? Uh, well, Basically, the uh, Dominion's a really, really nice site. If you want to understand how big North American ships were built and you can understand the massive frames, the massive keels and keelsons they had, and timber work, mm. you know, there's all, there's all fixing bolts and all that all, all the way through the site. So if you want to understand, get an idea how big these ships were, you just go down there because it was like 12, 1,200 tonnes. Mm. So... It didn't weigh 1,200 tonnes. That's the carrying capacity of a, of a vessel based on the number of cubic feet mm. <laughs> within the, the hull. So great little dives. Cool. Thanks, Rex. But that's okay. Look forward to having you <laughs> update us with all things maritime archaeology. Yeah, well worth a dive. Yeah. Without further ado, we're going to cross to Terry Allen for a dive report. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Marinaras. Hey, Terry. How are you? Good. Now, I've mentioned Dive Report, but there's a few things that we're going to cover today. Uh, yeah, yeah. I have got a few things uh, that have been going on. And um, so, yeah, Dive Report, I guess, look, the weather is 
spectacular, as you can see if you look out the window. Uh, very calm sea, so, uh, you know, go look at some more nudies at the piers or go outside and look at some wrecks or go in the uh, heads and, and do the wall. And, yeah, there's been some fantastic species sightings the last couple of months and uh, not so many nudies, of course, as you already talked about, um, but, um, yeah, some great photography we have in Melbourne as well. So... Um, there's some good fo Facebook sites you can go on to if you want to know what's happening. Um, but, yeah, it, it's a beautiful day before the wild weather comes through during the week. Yeah. Now, we mentioned that you've been up in Sydney for Oztec. Can you talk us through what that was about? Yeah, well, it was brilliant. And despite what Rex said, um, I didn't go to one talk about gas. <laughs> in fact, there were actually, uh, there were feet, there was quite a big section on free diving, uh, not something I uh, have any uh, knowledge about. But uh, we, lots, on, lots and lots on wrecks, actually, for wrecks. Um, <laughs> so we had Emily Turton came from, uh, she lives in, in Scarpa Flow in the Orkneys. Uh, where my partner Jeff and I went nine years ago, um, and Scarpa Flow was uh, the World War One uh, German fleet were, were um, uh, holed up in there, and then they scuttled their own fleet so that the uh, Allies couldn't get access to it. And it's now the, this year is the 100th anniversary of that happening. Um, and also a brilliant talk from Emily also on the Royal Oak, which is uh, celebrating uh, or commiserating, I suppose, it's uh, 75 years of being sunk in World War II. Um, and a lot of these talks are just so much about the technology and the photogrammetry, 3D incredibleness. Um, and I was lucky enough to be an MC at the, me at the meeting and um, so I got, you know, to see some brilliant talks and didn't have to pay for it, which was even better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had the AE-1 um, submarine, so Australia's first two submarines, AE-1, AE-2, and I think Rex has talked about, I can't remember if he's talked about them before, I think he has, yep. but there was a talk about the finding of the AE-1 um, off the East New Britain in Papua New Guinea, uh, and that they, you know, set it all up in the big boat and got all the machines to go ping, and within 12 hours they found it. Uh, which I think, Rex, yes, you've talked about that before, but saw some great uh, photogra underwater video um, of the A1, so that was incredible. Um, and also speaking of submarines, uh, Matt Carter, who won the uh, Media Award, because they do give out awards at the dinner, uh, who had all the stuff on the um, Jap midget Japanese submarines in Sydney Harbour and all about the uh, finding of those and the, and the history and some good photography on that as well. Um, and also that it was opened up briefly for divers last year by ballot and maybe they're looking at the possibility of uh, doing that again. Um, moving away from wrecks, there was a, there was a tank there was a tank cave, which is one of our sites, cave diving. We had a 3D virtual thing. You could actually put the goggles and and uh, headphones on and walk around and swim around inside Tank Cove. So that was very cool. Um, and also really exciting was uh, seeing Michael Orr, who's a brilliant photographer who comes from, I think he's originally from Hong Kong. Uh, and he did a talk about doing um, dark water photography, uh, mid-water, where you go out and just try to photograph the uh, tiny um, zooplankton, phytoplankton. And he just had some of the most spectacular photos um, but just sort of went through the whole process of 
how you're sort of hanging around there in the dark and you're tethered onto this line. And, um, yeah, it sounded really very exciting. <laughs> Sometimes referred to as teabagging in the ocean, isn't it, Terry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but, wow, gee, he had some incredible little uh, squid and just, yeah, amazing, amazing animals. So, I mean, obviously there's, when they do the big field studies there, they, you know, still finding a lot of new species and obviously the photographers really help. So. Mm. Um, on Wednesday, went to Ocean Festival, uh, film night and uh, that was brilliant as ever um, always one really quirky story this time it was about a guy who was in a 13 foot sailing boat that crossed the Atlantic back in the 70s um, really funny guy you know I remember the one uh, Bron we had that the, were those the kayakers that covered um, across from Oh, where were they? Um, in Canada or something last time. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. You remember that? Yes, yeah. I do. I do. Real crazy guys. They'd never done anything before. No, that's right. Blisters on the hands. Well, this guy was a bit the same, but yeah, he made it. And uh, yeah, that was that was great. Wow. Um, and finally, uh, just if you want a bit of extra report, I'm covering everything here. Um, uh, we were down at Portland and Warrnambool the last couple of days and um, excellent boogie boarding there so i'm not a surfer but there were nice little i don't know two three foot waves cape bridgewater bay and um and at warrnambool so perfect for me on my boogie board so head on down there if you want to you can do the walk up to the highest sea cliffs in victoria and see the seal colony down below Brilliant. Always a good one. A little bit of a plug for Portland down there. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. It's a perfect place yeah. to go to, yeah. It's a gorgeous place. Yeah. And a lot of people don't, you know, Port Ferry is, you know, as we now know, it's so overwhelmed with festivals and people and whatever. Um, but people don't drive quite as far as Portland and yet, you know, great diving, snorkeling, fishing and, of course, great surf. And, yeah, you just don't have the people, you know, it was... Yesterday morning, I think there was about five people in the water, you know, over the beautiful big bay, and the water was quite cold, I have to say. <laughs> I did have a 3 mil wetsuit. Um, in fact, it was interesting, the difference between Warrnambool and Port Ferry, it was felt like two or three degrees difference, but... Wow. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Awesome, right. Terry. Hey, we're going to have to move on, but um, thanks so much, and um, safe travels back from Portland. We'll hopefully, we'll catch you in studio soon. Sure. No worries. Thanks, Bron. Okay. Thanks. See you, Terry. Bye. Okay, bye. Terry Allen there with our multi-report today. (laughs) Now, if you've not caught the last few weeks of Radio Marinara, we've been following the campaign by Collective called Fight for the Bite Alliance to draw attentions to plans by Norwegian company Equinor to conduct deep water drilling in the Great Australian Bite commencing later this year. It's currently with the industry regulator Nopsema and the latest landmark was the close of public comments on Wednesday. Today represents another landmark with Melbourne's contribution to the campaign, a large-scale paddle-out planned for this afternoon in St Kilda. To find out more about it, first on the phone, a welcome back to Triple R from the Great Australian Bite Alliance campaign, Sean Doherty. Good morning, Sean. Yeah, morning, Brian. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, not bad at all. And in studio, President of the Melbourne branch of Surfrider International. Oh, actually, we haven't got President. We've got Vice President Jonathan Taylor. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Brian. Great to have you here. Thank you. And thanks to you for reaching out to us uh, about this payout, which is taking place today. Yeah, no, cheers for having me. Um, I heard you speaking about it a few weeks ago with Sean as well. Morning, Sean. <laughs> hey, Jonathan. 
Hey, uh, Sean, we might start with you. For those who haven't been following the campaign, can you give us a quick snapshot in terms of what Equinor have been proposing or what they've proposed? Yeah, sure. No, uh, well, Equinor formally uh, re- uh, proposed to put a deep water oil well uh, approximately 400 kilometres out into the Great Australian Bight. Really deep water. It's the deepest they've ever drilled. It, it's kind of frontier drilling um, and with it comes inherent risks. Um, those risks are being currently assessed by the industry regulator here in Australia, NOPSEMA. Um, they actually did open for the first time ever that process to the public, um, which we've just seen that window finish uh, this week and 30,000 Australians submitted... Uh, yeah, there are two bobs worth, which which I figured, uh, and I figured most of those thirty thousand would uh, pretty much be uh, securely in opposition against it. Thirty thousand submissions—that's absolutely amazing. Um, that was my first uh, question to you about <laughs> what the final uh, final tally was. Um, can you talk us through what happened last week at Burley Heads? Yeah, sure. No worries. Yeah, it was just after I had a chat to you guys. We uh, had the Burley Heads paddle out. Again, this whole thing just seems blessed. Like, we got to... Look, Burley Heads, for anyone who knows it, it's a, an amazing surf break. But this time of year, actually, kind of is open to quite a bit of swell. And, you know, organising a paddle out amongst that, you know, you've got to organise it a couple of weeks ahead and roll the dice. It was dead flat. It was the most beautiful day. Um, not a breath of wind. We had probably... I think it was about on par with what we had in Torquay in terms of a crowd turn-up. It was probably somewhere between two or 3,000. Which and the amazing thing with that was that Burley Heads isn't even in the the spill modelling map. Um, if if the worst case scenario happened and this thing screwed up royally, this Norwegian rig, the oil wouldn't even get to Burley Heads, and yet you still had three thousand people turn up in a sign of solidarity with the crew down south, but also in in support of just the the general principle of this thing. It's a really backward idea. It belongs last century. We shouldn't be doing it. And, and we had a lot of people in support of that idea at, at Burley last week. Um, Sean, you've been at both the Torquay and the Burley Heads paddle-outs. Can you talk us through the vibe about what it was like to be there and, I guess, in the lead-up to this afternoon's planned event in St Kilda? Yeah, it's like a very different... Like, you kind of think of, you know, traditional environmental protests and, and there's a lot of anger and, you know, being directed generally somewhere. There was none of that with these things. Um, they kind of more felt like community get-togethers. Like, sure, there was a really clear message coming out of it, but it was, like, a lot of grommets, like, all sorts of walks of coastal life. Like, the surfers were there, the surf club crew were there. Like, there was, like, elderly people who just, you know, love walking the beach. It was a a whole kind of cross-section of that crew, and it was more celebratory than anything. You know, it was, like, it was people celebrating that way of life, which is essentially what they're fighting for, you know. Mm. They're, They're basically just saying that, to the government, to the people that make these decisions and to, and to the big oil and the big everything that, that thinks they can just come in and, and just railroad the process, the process that's been set up for them, um, it's just a bit of a pushback, just going, nah, you, you're kind of going to have to go through us. Like, we want to stay in this thing. Mm. Jonathan, a question for you. How did you come to be involved? And can you talk us a little bit about Surfrider um, and the Melbourne chapter of Surfrider? Yeah, sure. So... Um, I was listening to Radio Maranara actually on the first uh, segment Sean was in um, and the paddle out happening in Torquay and I was speaking with Marvin, the president of Surfrider Foundation Melbourne about why we're not having one in Melbourne. There's so many surfers in Melbourne, so many people who care about the beach. Um, you know, you go to Torquay, you go down to Peninsula, go down to the bay. Um, and we really want to get people together 
to join the other campaign, other paddle outs, and yeah, make a make a stand. Mm. And at what point did you kind of go? Yeah, we let's let's do this thing and start to organise it. What uh, was kind of like the the real kicker for you, the real driver? Definitely Torquay's paddle out. Yeah, right. Seeing um, the scenes down there. Yeah. Um, and just knowing we could get something really similar here. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And there's been an iconic um, image of Damien Cole sort of delivering the the double one finger salute to um, to a sign about Equinor. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, he's con- there's a lot of passion in this, isn't there? Yeah, heaps. Yeah. It should be really good today in St Kilda. And Damien's going down there today as Correct. well. Yeah. We've got Excellent. A few really good people actually. Yeah. We've fan- got Steph Hodgins May from the Greens. Yep. Damien Cole and also Uncle Bonner from Nullarbor in South Australia, Nullarbor Coast. Um, so they're all giving speeches. Should be really good. Yeah. Um, Sean, whereabouts are you at the moment? I'm currently up home in Byron. Oh, you're still in Byron? Just, just got out of the surf. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was just going to say, I'm surprised Byron haven't got behind this as well. Yeah, I know. It's like the protest capital of Australia right yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> had, had a couple of small ones and it'll get here eventually. The, the best thing about all of this is these things have just have happened organically. There's a whole other series of them that Surfrider have, have kind of got uh, queued up beyond the Melbourne one now, like I know Perth on, like there's Wollongong, Newcastle, <clears throat> like all these all these coastal towns and cities are getting on board. So this thing's just going to keep rolling into the uh, end of the months ahead. Um, with this, I'm sort of wondering, have they sort of awoken a sleeping beast as far as surfers uniting? It's one of those things, you know, you have various interest groups, shooters, fishers, lobbies and all that sort of stuff. And surfers, you know, by... I guess definition, we tend to be pretty laid back and we don't tend to get together too often for things like this. Have they sort of awoken a sleeping giant with this? Oh, totally. Well, you look at the whole Australian way of life, it's all presented and culturally it's all geared around the coast. You know, we're a coastal people, that's how the world sees us, that's how we see ourselves. But surface traditionally, like you go back to the 70s, they were actually at the forefront of it. You look at, you know, Wayne Lynch, Nat Young, they were politically involved, they stood up on, on kind of social environmental issues, the whole deal. Um, but you've kind of gone through this probably 20-year period where it's, it's, surfers have just had it too good, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Really, apart from de- the development on the coast, there hasn't been a lot to push back against. Um, but you kind of... I, I kind of personally always thought that if if something ever popped up that could unite surfers around the coast and get them off their asses a bit, then you'd actually, you, exactly what you just said, it'd wake a bit of a giant. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's what we're seeing here right now. Um, so many people, like surfing's so different these days. It was it was so fringe back, you know, you look at the 70s and it was counterculture, was the whole deal. But it's, it's just big and there's a lot of people in this now who, from all walks of life, you know, people from high up as well. Mm. Um, and the, the number of people who've reached out to me about this from you know lawyers and and legal pe- and people politicians and like they've taken notice and it's it's going to be interesting to see where this goes in the next few months yeah no sorry brian i was just thinking with the um the students rallying against climate change and there's sort of causes like that where you know you're starting to see populations basically get together and um I guess band together and surfers are finally sort of getting there in a sense. So, you know, I can see them lending their voice to a whole lot of other things in future as well. Yeah, and I think it's a demographic shift as well. Um, you've got so many young people. That that was the other thing about, you know, those the Torquay paddle out. It was half. Like, my kids were there. All their friends were there. 
Um, it was such a young demographic, but they kind of they know what it's all about as well. They're not just they're not just there for a day out. They actually know what the issue is, and and this is what politicians are going to be dealing with in the next ten years. Uh, these kids as they grow up. I've been scrolling through my phone to um, look for some details, a message that was sent to me during the week, and I can't find it, but a prominent Australian uh, billionaire, I believe, who travelled to Norway to, um, to voice his protest. Jonathan, you're nodding. You obviously have some details on this. Uh, yeah, Anthony Forrest? Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, his um, company, Mindaroo Foundation, issued a press release just this week um, saying that drilling in the Great Australian Bight presents an unacceptable risk to an irreplaceable ecosystem. Um, I think it's really saying something coming from someone who's you know one of the 10 top 10 richest people in australia from mining yeah definitely uh we'll have to move on in just a moment let's talk about today's paddle out so you've mentioned briefly what's yeah, sure. happening where should people go when uh and what's sort of your agenda for today sure so we're kicking off today at two o'clock at katani gardens in st kilda west um sort of end of fitzroy street towards the beach um two o'clock we're starting with welcome to country uh, we've then got speeches from the president, Marvin Barker, who's been really important in his whole campaign. Really great organiser. Um, and then we have Uncle Bunalori. He's a mooning elder and a whale dreamer from the Nullarbor Coast in South Australia. We then have a speech from Steph Hodgins-May, who's from the Greens Party, and then from Damien Cole, who's been a really integral figure in the whole campaign too, and he's really good at getting everyone... Um, excited and yeah yeah and uh, and uncle bunner in particular he's been a really significant figure in this i was reading an article it was one of the um, south australian papers about him a few weeks ago sean yeah but laurie's been a huge part of this ever since like he's been involved in this since back like when these permits first got issued in 2011 and, and through the whole bp part of this saga um and the indigenous angle is huge on this just because of the potential for kind of ruination on all this coastline um, all this sacred land. Like, we were down in South Australia last week and met with a, an Indigenous crew and a couple of Indigenous elders um, who came, came in from Yalda. And they're, and they're really, like, this, this really matters to them. Um, mm. They can see what this... They can see the potential for what might happen here. And, and the, the whole coast... And just the length of this coastline um, and the number of people it affects. And I think there'll be a, a really big Indigenous voice step into this issue in the next uh, in the next couple of months, and I think, and Bunner's just uh, Bunner's just leading that today, and you'll just get a sense of that today, I think. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, look, we've already put all the details to this afternoon's event on the um, Radio Marinara Facebook page. Did that last night. So if you want Great. to get the details, if you haven't kind of noted them down, but basically two o'clock, Katani Gardens. You don't need to be a surfer. You can just Absolutely get not. down there. You can no. uh, even a you know boogie board, anything really. Anything. Even just standing on the beach. It's all about strength and numbers. Um, yeah. That's the biggest biggest thing. Excellent. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We'll catch up with you again and Marvin and talk more generally about Surf Ride yeah, Melbourne sure. as well. Definitely. Yeah. And Sean, thanks so much again for your time today. Yeah, thanks, Brian. No worries. And we'll, um, we'll catch up with you uh, maybe next week, but definitely in the weeks ahead to, um, to keep track of what's going on with uh, this campaign to save the Great Australian Bight. Not just the Bight, it's the whole of the um, South, South Australian coastline too. That's really important. It does come up to Melbourne. You know, Port Phillip Bay is right in the firing line if there was an oil spill. So definitely important to get down today to protect that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks, Sean. We'll catch you both soon. Cheers, guys. Okay, bye for now. And it's coming up to seven minutes to ten. Cade. All right, so that gives me a few minutes to talk about whale earwax. We won't talk about boat noise. Um, we'll move on. So 
it was one of those articles that I actually came across it last year, but um, as Radio Mar- Marinara sometimes does, we get carried away when we're talking to people and I didn't have time or space to bring it up, but I think it was an article, might have been ABC covered it, and it was from based on a journal written by Stephen Trumbler and Sasha Yusenko in Nature Communications, and it was about whale earwax, which I didn't realise they had whale earwax. And so apparently it forms just like ours. You know, we've got a gland that secretes oily gunk, mm. as it was put, into the ear, which hardens and accumulates. Now, I don't know whether we have this hardening and accumulation. We tend to keep our clean our ears and candle wax them and all sorts of things these days, whereas mm. whales don't have those options. So it basically builds up in layers. I guess you could say it's... You could say it's similar to ice cores. Mm-hmm. So in the Antarctica, they build up in layers. But what it also... Oh, before I get into what it traps, it can grow up to 10 inches long. Oh, my God. So in a blue whale, they've pulled out <laughs> earwax, 10 inches of earwax, which, as I said before, I'm sure it tastes pretty gross. And just to paint a picture for those at home, apparently it looks like it looks like a goat's horn mm-hmm. or a really nasty candle. That's <laughs> <laughs> one way to describe it. But... What it does, so similar to like the ice cores, information's deposited in those layers. And so what these guys did is they... Sorry, I'm jumping all over the place. I'm sorry about that this morning. Basically what they did is they looked at the layers and the substances are trapped in the layers. So each layer, the layers actually trap information about their environment, which includes like their feeding. So they'll lay like um, tree rings where you have like periods of strong growth will be lighter then you have dark areas, so it captures the summer and winter, so you can actually age them based on the earwax. But the other thing it also captures is cortisol, which is a hormone that uh, is released basically when we're stressed. Mm. So what they did is they went around to museums and sort of knocked on the doors and said, hey, have you guys got any whale's earwax laying around? Turns out museums do keep whale's earwax. Wow. Yeah. Just on the shelf? They must, and I think it's it's one of those things, museums, we take for granted the fact that museums have all this information sitting there archived just in case. Mm. So they collect this stuff and it can be hundreds of years old and at the time when they collect it they have no idea what story it's going to tell us and then someone comes along and goes, whale's earwax, we can start, we can <laughs> yeah. tell you something about that, thanks for keeping it. Yeah. So what was impressive is there was actually... a museum in the canadian museum of nature in ottawa has four thousand of them wow yeah so four thousand whale earwax plugs, yeah four thousand wow. nasty ki- <laughs> candles just <laughs> stored on their shelves so once they got them i can wh- just picture someone coming in with a sample and then someone going yeah just stick it with the other ones <laughs> yeah. and there's just a big bag of them yeah. all tagged out the back probably looks something similar to that yeah so what they actually did is for this study, they used 20. So they used 20 from blue whales, fin whales and humpback whales. Yep. The oldest of which which was dated back to a whale that was born in 1871. And so what they were doing is all the samples actually overlapped. So they had multiple samples for multiple years based on all the, the aged plugs. So what they were able to do is basically put together 146 years of chronology of whale stress. So they went through and they measured cortisol in each sort of these layers and each years and they were able to get 146 years' worth of data. So this is just not one individual. This mm. is all individuals mm. over that time. But, you know, it allowed for that background variation and all that sort of variability that you get with scientific data. And what they found in doing this is that 
in the 1950s and 60s when whaling was at its peak, whales were stressed. Mm. So they had background levels pre-whaling and they had the cortisol levels sort of travelling along reasonably sort of calmly and then whaling came along and whales were stressed. So they actually had a physiological response mm. to whaling and you could be detected using the cortisol. Then in 1972, the Marine Mammal Protection Act was introduced and the years following, cortisol levels dropped. Wow. So there's this... You know, there's your evidence. Very distinct sort of evidence yeah. Yeah, behind it. So as I mentioned, they have several thousand of these to go through so they've basically just started this is one of the first studies that they've done mm. so i've made sure that i've followed these goes on google scholar to see any future so um, any future work that comes out of it but there's a whole lot of other things that they seem to believe they'll be able to measure and sort of basically calculate and start to tell these stories of whale stress the disturbing thing was is that after this drop off in 1970s it's actually starting to creep back up in right. the most recent time and mm. they did say that there were limited samples, so they didn't want to draw too many conclusions from that, but they're linking into the topic I was going to talk about. They believe noise could be a part of it. Just out of interest, how did they actually collect them and how could they date them? Did they take them from the corpse or were they found washed up on the beach? What? It didn't actually go into that, so I'm not sure if, you know, if a whale washes up on the beach, there's someone there <laughs> with a big giant earbud <laughs> ready to pull it out. Or maybe they hold their shape and wash up. That's you've asked me like a question <laughs> that I have no idea of the answer, so I'm going to have to look that up Sorry, next time. But I it could it. be a bit like ombergris, so whale vomit that yes. sometimes just forms a lump and then washes up and has been used in the past yeah. as a basic. Yeah, perfume. but I'm assuming but if they can age it, they must find a dead whale. They know when it died and then they're able to backdate it from then. I so assuming. I imagine a lot of those samples must be from sort of wash-ups or strandings or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my little chat on whale earwax and i'll be back with more we're we are all fascinated with all things that come out of whales aren't we We've, we went for we went through a little ombre patch for a while and whale poo whale earwax it's all going on and whale spit too they collect as yeah. well at the uh, blowhole having a whale of a time <laughs> yeah, hey, nice. hey uh, thank you very much Kate. thank you very much rex thanks bro thank you very thanks, much kent um kent has been paneling for us today and he will continue in that role um and speaking as well with, uh, with radiotherapy coming up shortly. And thanks to our guests as well, Sean Doherty and Jonathan Taylor. On next week's program, Dr Beach will be in along with Fom Sharko. So great show lined up for you. Stay tuned for radiotherapy. They will take you through to 11 when the doctors will take you through to 12 and get down there for the Melbourne Paddle Out at 2 o'clock in St Kilda. Yep, Have I'll see you down there. Yeah, awesome. Have a great Sunday and we'll catch you next week. Bye for now. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.